Welcome to The Culture, a weekly show about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts and entertainment. I'm Osman Faruqi and this week we're talking about a TV series that is making headlines for all the wrong reasons, The Real Housewives. The franchise first went to air in 2006, and it follows the social lives of wealthy women in different cities across the United States. There are now 11 separate American series in the franchise, including The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Atlanta, New York City, and there are another 15 internationally, including, of course, The Real Housewives of Melbourne. In its early years, the show was criticised for being trashed. TV. Feminist icon Gloria Steinem even called it a minstrel show for women. But the show shrugged off those labels, becoming bigger and bigger, exploring themes of consumerism, class and race, all while being highly entertaining. Now, one of the most popular series in the franchise is at the centre of serious legal drama, providing both high-stakes entertainment and a window into what happens when highly produced reality TV collides with actual reality. To help explain why the franchise is both increasingly popular and important, I'm joined by Real Housewives superfans, comedian Jen Fricker and writer Katie Cunningham. Jen, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Katie, welcome to the culture. Hi, good to be here. I'm going to be honest straight off. I have seen like some of the show. I've seen sporadic bits of different seasons. Most of my knowledge probably comes from being in a group chat with Katie and some of our other friends who sporadically throw in, you know, gossip about this show. So I kind of have this awareness around it. I felt compelled to do this episode because both of you independently contacted me in the same couple of days and said, Oz, why haven't you done something on Real Housewives yet? Everyone around my life seemingly is not just increasingly obsessed with the franchise as a as a whole, but also some of the drama that's been happening recently. So to me, this seems like a perfect time to delve into this series. But before we get to that drama, I, I want to ask each of you guys, when you first started watching Real Housewives, And what sucked you into it, whether you were kind of gripped straight away or whether it took you a little while and maybe why you felt so, so drawn to it. Katie, I might start with you. Tell me about your origin story with Real Housewives. Yeah, well, I originally started watching Real Housewives back in 2014 and I watched the very short-lived Sydney series as well, but I didn't really get into Housewives as a franchise properly until last year when I started watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills in lockdown. And that sent me like turbo into Housewives World. And um, I was gripped straight away. You want to have an honest conversation? Do you want to do it now? I, what did I tell you? This goes what way... I, I'm asking you, do you go- want to do it now? What did I tell you in the beginning? Let's lay it all out there. You want to threaten me? You want to go there? Let's do it. I'm telling you, I'm not threatening you. I've had it with you. Quit f***ing two-faced. That scary Can voice you right there. Abuse me. That's the scary you have voice. mistreated me and for years. I'm sick of it. Years. I'm like, I think that... It's TV that's trying to be immediately gratifying and it is immediately gratifying. So I was kind of hooked from the get-go. Jen, what about you? Tell me about your entree into this world of rich women being housewives. <laughs> um, I think I first was like aware of housewives, kind of the same as yours, just from seeing people talking about it on social media. I generally love trash TV and... Yeah, I got into it initially from Real Housewives of Melbourne, uh, yeah, when that started a few years ago. 
I guess because I find like the idea of Australian reality TV quite quaint still, like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, because it just seems like, like our country's still too small or something to be able to sustain it. Like a dog walking on its hind legs. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's like we're play acting at like. Trying. Yeah. Um, And then uh, same as Katie really got into Real Housewives of Beverly Hills during the pandemic and. I really like it because, and reality TV in general, because there's just so many episodes. So you can just kind of spend like a whole day watching it. It is that initial like immediate gratification, but then also because of the volume of episodes, you get quite deep character development. Like you really get to know these people because you are literally spending 20 plus hours watching them over the course of one season, which I don't think you really get with a lot of other TV. Yeah, fully, especially because like heaps of the housewives have been on the show for over a decade. So obviously you just see them go through so much change and so much in their lives over that time. And you get so invested in it. And, you know, like there's, there's like there's villainous characters in housewives and there's housewives who you get to see have downfalls that are kind of delicious, but then you also see, you know, people redeem themselves and go through all this hardship. And I think more often than not, you kind of end up rooting for them and hope that they're okay. So when Beverly Hills starts, two of the housewives on the show are um, Kim and Kyle Richards and they're Paris Hilton's aunts. So immediately you kind of give a shit about them because you are already kind of aware of these people and it's an insight into that family. Um, And then another housewife, Kelsey Grammer's at the time wife. And so of course, like you care about her as well. Um, yeah, so even yeah, it's it's really easy to get into. Hearing you guys talk about it, I definitely get it. And I'm obviously people who listen to the show know that I'm not someone who, you know, likes to think that they're above reality TV or I've admitted to watching every episode of the Kardashians multiple, multiple times. And I think it's interesting that both of you said you really fell into it during the pandemic and lockdowns and yeah, like you, that's a moment in which you want to watch a lot of television because what else is there to do? But at the same time, you want TV that is kind of low stakes. It's Mm. stuff that you can have on and you can, you know, double screen and you can cook, you can clean, and it's kind of always on there. And I get that as the appeal to it, but I also get the sense from, from talking to both of you, but also just the more the, the there's discourse around real housewives right there's kind of meta conversations about what the show is actually about what it means and it seems to me that there is something a bit deeper about the show that makes it compelling or something about it that makes it different to a lot of other reality tv or even tv out there i wonder whether or not you guys have thoughts on whether there's something beyond the kind of superficial engagement of just what these people are doing on screen that adds some depth to the show and makes it more compelling and watchable. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what has stood out to me, especially in the first few seasons of Beverly Hills, is that there's entire storylines around the impacts of domestic violence, suicide, mental health, that kind of thing, which the way it's represented does feel very... It doesn't feel like they're trying to make a meal out of it, but it also feels very real to me in that people don't want to talk about these things and it does make it uncomfortable and it does. And, you know, there's elements of drug addiction and things like that. You are a liar and sick and alcoholic. Stop it. Okay? You are an alcoholic. Yes, that's right. That's right. I've said it now and everybody knows. I've only ever seen Kim very sweet, very clear, and she is... 
I'm worried about you, to be honest with you. You're seeing these people in real time respond to these things in as an authentic way as you kind of can. You know, like it's the difference between the Kardashians where uh, in the later seasons you see Kim responding to Kanye West's breakdowns and things like that by saying, I don't want to talk about this, I don't want this on camera, that kind of thing, whereas these shows kind of go there and lean into it for better or for worse. Um, it does feel at times like too intimate and too much, but then I'm also like, you know, I'm not walking away being like, wow, that was a really great lesson about that, but I also just feel like it feels in some way like way more humanising yeah, no, fully. That domestic violence uh, situation that's on Beverly Hills in one of the early seasons was the most kind of confronting and disturbing depiction that I've ever seen of intimate partner violence. And it really resonated in a way with me that I think a, a documentary or a scripted show just wouldn't. Um, but I think, like, I think part of what's so engaging is that you're seeing these women and they're middle-aged women as well who you really never get to see on TV dealing with these issues that a lot of, you know, middle-aged or older women face in their lives, like their husband's leaving them for a younger woman or their partner dying or all this kind of like intense stuff. And it's a way to kind of process it and talk about it with your friends. And yeah, but I feel like that's a big part of what makes it so, so engaging for me. So tell me more about this storyline that you've both been discussing, This, the way that the show represented what you described, Katie, as one of the most visceral experiences of, of intimate partner violence you've seen on screen. Yeah, so there's a housewife in the early seasons of Beverly Hills called Taylor who is married to this man, Russell, and in season two of the show it kind of gradually becomes apparent that he is abusing her. And there is a scene kind of towards the end of season two where you've probably seen the lady yelling at cat meme, which is, you know, there's a meme of a lady. It's a very iconic meme, yeah. Very iconic meme. Um, so that's actually from Real Housewives. And the lady who's yelling at the cat is Taylor, who is the housewife who's in an abusive relationship. And that scene that that, like, still image comes from is actually a really upsetting scene because what's happening is she's yelling at another housemate who has just said on camera that Taylor's husband abuses her kind of for the first time. And Taylor is really, you know, very afraid and very distressed because she's like, you don't know what you've just done to me. Like you have just ruined my life because, you know, obviously her husband is going to see this on the show when it airs and, you know, it's going to be very unsafe for her. I'm worried about Taylor's well-being. I'm worried about her state of mind right now. Don't do this. I don't think that Taylor's breakdown had anything to do with what happened in Malibu. I really believe this is what's going on in her personal life, and obviously it's a lot worse than we realize. (laughs) It's so weird that meme really hits different now. Like, obviously, I didn't think that that came from a woman actually yelling at a cat, but the cat (laughs) and the context... It's it's all stripped. The, the, I mean, this is how memes work. It's completely devoid of context. But mm. knowing how visceral the context is is a little bit distressing. I just don't think that meme will hit the same for me now in the future. Yeah. You you do watch, like, characters. Well, characters. They're people. But you keep thinking <laughs> the characters. It's, I know. I keep saying characters. <laughs> uh, but you keep seeing these people, these women drinking a lot and then that becomes a storyline oh this woman is drinking a lot oh she's a bit of a liability at parties and stuff which of course is encouraged by the producers but then you find out later that it's literally a coping mechanism for being in an abusive relationship and it's 
that kind of stuff, you're like, oh, I don't know if I should be watching this, but I'm of course going to continue watching it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes you complicit, I guess. I don't know. It's, I don't feel good about it, but then I'm also like, I'm glad that I watched it because I do feel like that's probably one of the more realistic representations of an intimate partner violence situation that I've seen on TV. It's not melodramatic. It's what's not being said, which is why it's so chilling. Mm. I guess this always comes up with these kinds of shows, this question of like, is it feminist to watch this show? Are you a bad feminist for watching this show? Gloria Steinem uh, has written and, and talked publicly about how she thinks that this show is not feminist. Roxane Gay, the author of Bad Feminist, has rebutted that. I think the the Real Housewives franchises allow women to be their truest selves. And we see the mess and we see the amazing friendships and everything in between. And when women are allowed to be their fullest selves, that's the most feminist thing we can do. Wow, I like it. I would love to know how you guys feel about that kind of discussion on this. Maybe we'll start with you, Katie. How do you feel as a feminist watching this kind of show? I think Real Housewives is very feminist. And I think that Gloria Steinem, I would question whether she's even watched the show or how much she's watched if if she has seen any of it because I feel like I think she said oh she didn't like that they'd had plastic surgery and that they fight with each other because she thought it was you know a depiction of women being hateful towards each other. I think that's a very shallow reading of the show like I, I think that part of what is so great about Real Housewives is that it's about these these middle-aged women who firstly we never see on TV ever and we're not seeing them as these kind of secondary characters to their children or to their husbands. They're the stars of the show. And what the show is about is their female friendships with each other. Like the men are totally secondary here. And, you know, I think that's a really rare thing in television and a really special thing. And part, like definitely for me, part of the appeal of watching it is just getting to see these women live their lives for for better or worse. Yeah. I don't think it's a perfect feminist show, but also would I want to watch a perfect feminist show? Like probably not. Sometimes as a feminist, you want to take off your feminist hat at the end of the day and just watch something dumb. <laughs> um, a thing I really value about the show, which I think picking up on what Katie said about, like it is really about these central female relationships, these friendships and stuff, is the conflict. I don't think we see conflict modelled as well sometimes between women as we do on Real Housewives. And again, that is because of the producing of it. Producers are going up to them and saying, hey, you need to go and speak, uh, tell this woman how you feel about her, speak to her directly about it. There's been a lot of gossip in the tabloids, vicious, nasty stuff as far as I'm concerned. And it's like the elephant in the room. I don't feel I can ignore it with Kyle. So the best thing to do, I feel, is to hit it head on. I feel like Lisa is not done punishing me. You know, this is beginning to feel like a game to me. And I don't want to play games with my friends. I don't think we see that kind of conflict modelled as women. Usually it's talking, it's gossip behind people's back and that kind of thing. I find it very refreshing to see women going up to other women and being like, hey, I want to talk to you about this thing you said about me Mm. or why did you say this on Twitter about me, that kind of thing. I think it's refreshing and... Obviously not the most positive model. We don't, not, but I don't think everything has to be a lesson. I don't think that every bit of culture has to be something that makes me a better person at the end of the day. I just like seeing things that are reflected back to me that are 
interesting, I guess. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and the kind of conversation, it feels a bit reductive. And it reminds me of that tweet from a few years ago. You know, it's like, is MasterCard a good feminist ally or whatever? It's like, <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, you clearly neither of you are like becoming less feminist by watching this show. I don't know, man. <laughs> I really like thought about a lot of Botox since watching the show and I'm There's into it. Nothing not feminist about having Botox, right? Either. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like not everything has to be a lesson. I don't yes. think that everything we engage with has to then make us a better person at the end of it. I think sometimes we can just like have smooth brains and watch things and enjoy them for what they are, which is like colourful, splashy, mm. emotional. Yeah. It centralizes the experience of women so therefore is like more feminist than most things that we are watching yeah yeah and you're watching women at a certain age go through experiences that are specific to women being left for younger women depictions of intimate partner violence uh raising children whether or not you want to have children are you too old to have children that kind of thing starting their own businesses things like that which i don't think are really depicted outside of reality tv a lot of people I know are in specific group chats about this show. So you watch the show and the show like raises issues and then what it's interesting to do is then talk to your friends about what came up. And it seems like half of that is about sharing gossip and then half of that is about processing some of the heaviest stuff that was on the show. Do you guys have your own experiences of that kind of way of watching the show? I mean, I think that um, Brody Lancaster, the writer, has a line where she said, no one housewives alone. Like, it's a very social viewing experience. You've got to have your housewives group chat. You've got to talk about it with your friends. Um, and I think that's probably part of why it's been so big, I think, for people in lockdown as well, is it's kind of this way to connect with people when we're not having that much social connection. Yeah, it feels like it's, like, one of the few last collective experiences. Mm. Because, like, it is so immediate because some of it is so outlandish that you will see people's immediate reactions to it on social media. I kind of feel like it is in a similar way that people talk about sport. <laughs> We've yes, all got our favourite players. Yes. Oh We've my all God, got – And, we, and you know, the way that, a, a like, a football season or something has certain, like, semifinals, that kind of thing. Like, we have the girls' trip and the reunion specials at the end. Like, you know these moments are coming through the season – And so you're all kind of gathering around and like watching the stats and comparing to previous seasons and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, and then seeing the characters responding to how they're being spoken about. I don't know. Yeah, for me, that that kind of made me feel like I was kind of in part of a community. Mm, Yeah, definitely. We'll be right back. Hearing you guys talk about it's making me think why I haven't kind of fallen into this world quite as much. And it feels very overwhelming. Like there's so many different franchises. Like I I probably can't list them all, but just off the top of my head, Beverly Hills, there's New York, there's Potomac, there's DC, there's Salt Lake City, there's Johannesburg, there's Auckland, there's Melbourne, there was Sydney, there's Atlanta. There's a lot of these shows and a lot of them have a lot of seasons. And even, you know, when I remember when I started watching RuPaul's Drag Race, there's all these weird orders people say you should watch them in. You know, it's like, don't start with season one, start with season four and then go to season seven and then go back and do one to three. It's like, ah, I just want to watch TV. I don't want to solve this complicated riddle. <laughs> do you guys have uh, favorite franchises? I think my favorite ultimately is New York, but I think Beverly Hills is a great 
introduction to the world of housewives. And it's kind of where I recommend people start with it because I just think it's so immediately engaging because of that celebrity element. And it's kind of, you know, it's got the glitz and glamour and the absurd wealth and everything that is another part of what makes Housewives fun. Yeah, for sure. I feel like if you want the glitz and glamour, you go to Beverly Hills. It's also got, I think, the most seasons, so it's a lot to start with. I have, like, such a soft spot for Melbourne Mm. because there's a bit of, like, mongrel in the women. Yeah. They're feral. They're feral. You don't have pre-dementia. We know that. And if you think you have, I will drive you to get an MRI and go and see a doctor to check your brain out. And the only thing they're going to say is you're not using the left side of your brain properly because you'd lie so much. I'm sorry for some of the things I did say, but not others. I never run down anybody's appearance. The first time I met you, you called me fat. But you are. I think we're all a bit fucked up. And I think that everybody's got something really negative to say about everybody. Fuck everyone, go fuck yourself. They're feral. They're a bit feral and and also there's just so, something so funny about being a rich person in Melbourne, like when you compare it to <laughs> <laughs> the rich people totally. in Beverly Hills, you know what I mean? Like it's just like people who are legends in their own lunchboxes uh, living out yeah. a narcissistic dream that... You know what I mean? To be the richest woman in Turak versus the richest woman yeah. in America. Like it's just, it's kind of amazing um, and I do like that. I, yeah, I, I always point people to Beverly Hills, though. I just think it is the gold standard. I think it's the platonic ideal of the franchise. Beverly Hills is one of the most popular franchises in, in the whole series. The 11th season is coming to an end. I've seen so much conversation about, like, these reunions that are happening. There is controversy. There's, like, there's drama on Real Housewives that's spilling over into the real world. Though, I mean, I guess that's a strange way of putting it because the show is about the real world. But I guess I've seen quote-unquote serious news outlets talk about uh, some of the, the the legal problems that are being had on the show right now. And it seems to me that what we're seeing in that season of Housewives is a perfect kind of encapsulation of what you guys are talking about, where the show can be light and fun and silly, but also raise these really serious questions about society and where these women sort of fit into it. It seems so complicated. I don't really know how much we can get into it in this podcast, but I'd love you. Maybe, maybe um, Jen, do you want to kick off by just kind of giving us a bit of a run through about some of the players involved in this season of Beverly Hills and how we got to this point of, of this legal nightmare, I guess. <laughs> I would love to run you through it, Oz, because there's so much going on. All right, so... I would say the central controversy in this season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is centred around a woman called Erica Jane. That's her pop star name, Erica Giraldi. And she, I think, has been on the show for about four or five seasons at this point. Her whole thing is that she's a brassy former cocktail waitress who married like a 70-year-old man um, and in her 40s decided to rebrand as a pop star, largely backed by her very, very rich um, husband, and she's always through the show been very unapologetic about how wealthy she is. She um, has said previously, like, I spend about $40,000 a month on glam, hair and makeup, clothes, that kind of thing. Flies her, like, glam squad everywhere with her private jets, that kind of thing. So far, so good. I love this. Get that bag, Erica. Marry that rich guy and pivot to being a pop star. Hold that thought. <laughs> yeah. And then halfway through the season, uh, she kind of surprises everyone by saying she's getting a divorce from her husband who 
through the show has largely been represented as endlessly doting and very, very supportive. And then about, (laughs) it feels like a minute later, both of them are embroiled in allegations of embezzling money from the families of victims of plane crashes. I take back uh, what I said. Don't, don't get that bag. (laughs) That's bad. Yeah. So it's funny because then you're watching these housewives read this LA times article, basically detailing this huge fraud, uh, that their friend, has like allegedly perpetrated. There's news reports coming out that are alleging that Tom embezzled this money from victims of this plane crash. And to see Erica's name involved in it is shocking. Seeing these headlines makes you cringe. Some of these victims, they're widows, orphans. That's the punch in the gut. You just can't imagine this is somebody you know or you spend time with and this is possible. Is this the tip of the iceberg? I don't know. I have no idea what is true or not, but I have to be able to keep an open mind and say innocent until proven guilty because I'm going based on the person that I know. Yeah, and so then they're all kind of questioning, do we actually know this person? Who is this person? And I guess as an audience, we're also doing the same. We've just spent four or five seasons watching her, believing that she is who she's representing herself to be, and then immediately undercutting it. If it was being written, if it was fiction, you it would be too flimsy. Like, mm-hmm. you can't just make a character, like, evil in yeah. one fell swoop <laughs> like that. People wouldn't go with it. But because it is, you're reading the same LA Times articles, you're seeing the same Instagram posts that they're all reacting to. So it just feels very, the stakes have never been high. <laughs> Did you have any idea? No. no idea. And we were just in Tahoe and not one. Zero. Peep. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nothing. Well, uh, okay. Yeah. Let's discuss the elephant in the room. And I think it's that, it's this thing of part of what makes Housewives great is that you do get this payoff with characters. So, you know, we've, yeah, we've had Erica on the show for a few years now and it's mostly just been like fun with her. She hasn't really had any drama in her life. And now all of a sudden we get to have this front row seat to her life spectacularly imploding. And it's like, yes, like I put in the hours for this. Like I'm ready (laughs) for this. (laughs) Uh, It's like, um, I kind of compare it to the final season of The Sopranos. Like I also started watching The Sopranos during pandemic and it was one of those things where I never knew, I never really wanted to watch it because I guess how people talked about it, I was like, oh, it just seems like too much, too dense. But by the end of the, you never like point to a specific season of The Sopranos and go, you've got to watch this one because so much of The Sopranos is about character development. It's about relationship. It's about getting to know like how their lives ebb and flow. And this feels like the final season of Sopranos where you're like, wait a second, this person might have been evil all along? Like, this is crazy. I love that. Last last week on the show we did Succession and I spent a long time talking about how it was like the Sopranos. So <laughs> I like making this a constant theme of this show is that it's like, <laughs> yeah. how much is this show we're talking about yeah. like the Sopranos? <laughs> the Sopranos <laughs> element, yeah. It's just you, you really can't write it and that's why I think it's so compelling. And also, you know... Erica Jane's life as it is being represented does seem like it's derailing, but it's also like it's still cushioned by a large amount of wealth. Like she's literally sitting at a dinner table being like, I have nothing. I'm like my life is going down the drain and she's wearing like a $1,000 shirt from Kenzo or something. You know what I mean? Like there's still this cushion that allows you to enjoy it as much as maybe that's 
not a good thing spiritually, but for <laughs> entertainment purposes is very good. I let go of my Lamborghini. I let go of my 16,000 square foot home. I let go of my marriage. I let go of everything. I literally... If you are involved in some kind of embezzlement scandal, it seems very high risk to be on a TV show called The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and kind of show off your wealth and mm. these extravagant displays of it. And it's really interesting because it feels like these universes are collapsing, like both on this show and in the Kardashians. I think this thing that is becoming more and more the case as the seasons go on is we watch this stuff happen in the real world. We read these stories and then immediately it's like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see this reflected in the show in a couple of months' time and, and then pick apart, you know, what's going on and see their reactions to it. Where are we up to in that kind of timeline, Katie? Like how... Does, is the show capturing in real time, like, these consequences for Erica? Are there consequences for Erica? Like, how, do, how is this going to play out, do you think? So basically what's happening in real life now is they're preparing the court case against her husband. So we're kind of waiting to see, like, what is going to happen when he gets his day in court. Will he be found guilty? Will he not? And so Erica's in this kind of weird situation of, Anything she says on the show, like, can and will be used against her and Tom in court. Something broke today about her and Tom being sued. Wow, this is on Fox News. It's everywhere. So she's kind of having to choose her words very carefully, but then also having the housewives, you know, kind of push her on on details and, you know, kind of maybe tripping her up a bit on inconsistencies in her story. How are you? horrible how do you think i am this sucks so bad the things that are being said are just wrong people are believing them and they're everywhere and it's terrible and i'm here by myself and what's being said is just i mean it's insane that my divorce is a sham but nobody cares about the facts how did you first find out about this boeing lawsuit how did you learn about it? i can't answer that and that's like really thrilling. And then there's also all this talk right now of uh, footage from the show and unaired footage from the show being subpoenaed for the court case as well. So this drama is not just going to be this season, like it's going to keep playing out probably for years to come on the show. I feel really bad for her lawyer. I don't know if you guys have ever been involved in any kind of legal trouble without going into details, just in general terms. <laughs> anytime you get caught up in anything like that, lawyers just like don't say anything to anyone. The opposite of that is going on a reality TV show and talking about it multiple times. Yeah. Well, the thing with Erica as well is that uh, Tom has declared bankruptcy and she's split from him. And so she's kind of saying, like, I don't have any money. Um, so basically, you know, and that is relative, as as Jen's saying, like, for most of us, she would still have me. But she is kind of relying on this salary from Housewives now. Like, that's really all she has. So she's in this weird position of, like, potentially incriminating herself by being on the show, but also needed in salary, but also wanting to use this show as a way to kind of try and like prove her innocence and come off as the, you know, jilted wife who had no idea that all this was going on. So she's got a lot of balls in the air right now. I just think it's so compelling because, again, it's kind of like why we like true crime podcasts because all the evidence now is out there. We can go back through the seasons and re-watch, like, her interactions with Tom, the way she talks about money, how, like, she doesn't really ever address any of this stuff in the moment but now is kind of rewriting the history of it. Plus we are seeing these Instagram posts where she is just flaunting her wealth but then on the show being like, I've got to do it because I I have to keep my head up, you know. I think it also just says something about where 
American society is at the moment. And maybe that's also why it's not as uh, jarring to watch is that because Americans are so obsessed with wealth and perception and that kind of thing. You really are. It feels like you're watching them rearrange the deck chairs on a sinking ship. You know what I mean? Mm. Like who cares what you look like if you're about to like get thrown into a court case where you potentially might have embezzled money from the victims of like plane crashes but it is that kind of thing where it's amazing to watch these people just persist in these representations of themselves. And they have as much control of it as uh, they want, you know what I mean? They are self-producing as they go and they'll kind of use this idea that Andy Cohen, who's like the producer of all these Bravo shows um, and like the creator of the franchise, as if he's going to give them a good or bad edit. But ultimately it's their participation in it. Like it's a well-established machine at this point. Um, and yeah, it's just, I love it. <laughs> it's really keeping me going. The show has been around for a decade, over a decade now. And as you're saying, Jen, America has gone through a lot of change in that time. And I'm really interested in your perspectives on how, like, a show airing, and we talked about this with Gossip Girl as well, like, the original Gossip Girl, when it aired in 2007, aired in a time, like, kind of before the global financial crisis when we were all a little bit more willing to just indulge rich people doing silly things on television. And Real Housewives, you know, was was sort of similar around that. I wonder whether or not you guys think that has changed and is there more... Is it trickier now? Is it more complicated to watch these people live lives that are extravagantly wealthy? Or is it that's not really the point of the show? It's like, cool, I don't like rich people, but that's not going to stop me from looking at their lives and and seeing what's going on in their world. I think that when the show started, because I think it started in 2006, so like Gossip Girl kind of just before the GFC, it kind of was this way to look at like the spectacle of wealth and be like, look at these absurd people you know, spending $40,000 on a four-year-old birthday party, whatever. And I think over time, the show has kind of evolved. Like, obviously, the people on there are still absurdly wealthy, but that's kind of not the point of it anymore. It's evolved to be about the relationships between these women and their lives and the fact that they're rich is kind of just like the background setting to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's something nice about seeing that people can be unhappy at any tax bracket. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like the the show has changed in recent years where maybe there is a kind of complicit understanding that this wealth does come at a cost. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the way that they've tried to address that is by bringing in, um, you know, the first African-American housewife, the first um, Asian housewife on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills to try and bring like a conversation about race into it. And depending on how you see it, it's either backfired or gone spectacularly. (laughs) What do you mean by that in the sense that it's like it's really terrible and awkward but it's great television? Yeah, it definitely feels like someone at a network somewhere has been like, oh, Black Lives Matter is a thing. We should bring in someone who can talk about it because we're going to lose our relevance if we don't. But then also these women have never really been confronted by their own privilege and you're seeing some of these conversations play out. There's a conversation between Crystal Kung-Minghoff and uh, Sutton uh, where basically Sutton Strack, a white woman, says, I don't really see race, I don't really see colour to an Asian-American woman. I am not talking about racial stereotypes when I am... Well, it's easy for you not to. Are you one of those people that you don't see colour? Tell me you're that girl. I don't see colour. I really don't see color. 
I don't see race. I don't do it. I see color. It's part of who I am. A white person telling me you don't see color, it's like brushing it under the rug. The word racist to me is like a virus, worse than COVID. And I don't think it's ever occurred to Sutton that maybe that it was like quite a diminishing thing to say. I'm sure like a lot of white people who have probably said that to people of color, they don't mean it as a minimizing thing. They mean it as a positive thing. But watching women at that stage in their lives, like middle-aged women, women at that level of privilege have to grapple with that, that maybe they are complicit in something that they haven't seen. You know, there's a lot of other housewives being like, I have black friends, I have Asian, and it's just like a bit of a car crash. Um, I was talking to <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who, another woman of colour, who was saying, like, it's interesting to watch women at this level of privilege have those conversations with white women because every woman of colour has had to have that conversation with a white woman and that conversation doesn't change again at uh, whatever tax bracket you're at. But what I like about the show is that they're not trying to learn anything out of it then. It's more just about the awkwardness of that conversation rather than them all walking away better people. That's actually really interesting because, again, to go back to Gossip Girl, you know, the the reboot of the show seemed like it was trying so hard to engage in this, you know, post-Black Lives Matter world by introducing characters of colour and discussions around race and identity and... I mean, to be honest, I thought that was an appalling decision. Like, I, if I want to watch a show about that, I'll watch a show about that. The point of a show like Gossip Girl is just rich people from the Upper East Side live their weird lives and you don't need to shoot mm. on that into it. And mm. in some ways, I'm glad that this movement kickstarted these conversations in America because it certainly didn't really happen in Australia. But at the same time, I do sort of feel a bit like, wow, so... George Floyd gets killed by the police. There's these huge protests about why we need to abolish the police and rebuild society in a way that's much more equal and less discriminatory. And then the end outcome of that conversation is now there's a black real housewife on Beverly Hills. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think, again, it's like the franchise isn't trying to say like, oh, and from like having these conversations will make America a better place. They're just saying like, oh, yeah, maybe there's always been a darkness at the heart of wealth and this kind of wealth that revitalized. And here we're going to set up situations where these women are going to trip over themselves. Yeah, I I just think Bravo is in this kind of funny position where they make reality shows that are really primarily kind of silly escapism, but they're still reality. So they have to acknowledge these giant thing happening in the country and in the lives of these people. And so they're kind of trying to tread this line of, you know, not pretending that Black Lives Matter hasn't happened, but also, you know, not making the show too heavy. And yeah, like it's a difficult balance to strike. And I don't know if they've done it that well yet, um, but it, it is interesting to watch. We'll be right back. Both of you mentioned before the the kind of local versions of these franchises, Melbourne and Sydney. I'm really surprised that Sydney didn't succeed because when I think about the concept of this show and I think about the class of people who would be amazing to follow around, I think of like, you know, Sydney's eastern suburbs or North Shore. It just seems so ripe 
for something like this. Why do you think Sydney didn't work and do you think there's a way that it could? Are there any people that you would love to see on on a Sydney version of Real Housewives? Obviously, Katie and I should be on the Sydney (laughs) versions of Real Housewives. Genuinely my life goal. (laughs) Get me on that show. Um, I, I mean, I think like the not deep answer to this question is just that the casting wasn't that good for Sydney. And this is because, I, as I said, this show is really about these women and their lives and their relationships with each other. The goodness of the show really hinges on the casting being strong. And if it's just a bit off, it doesn't really work. And I feel like that was what happened for Sydney. Like I was saying earlier, I think there's something still very quaint about Australian reality TV shows. And I think I find them quite hard to watch because conflict so easily gets represented as like really dark and picking up on what Katie was saying, like the casting for Sydney included like Lisa Oldfield, David Oldfield's wife. And so when you're watching these women, it's not, I don't know the way that they have conflict with each other, which is such a central like uh, theme of these shows. It just feels darker. I don't know why, but it just feels like it hits a lot harder. I do remember hearing that Sydney didn't get exported overseas because they thought it was was too feral for international audiences. Yeah, but. yeah. It just felt like it just felt like bullying. It just felt really <laughs> dark. Um, I mean, it feels very Sydney in a very Australian way for the wife of the co-founder of One Nation to be on this TV show. Yeah. Exactly, and again, I think it's just for us there's not enough of a cushion of wealth or something to want to indulge people like that because Mm -hmm. I think we're all still living through the very real impacts of, like, what these people do, you know? Yeah, it's so – it's just the thing with Australia. It's so insular. So it's not even like, wow, how do these people live? It's like we know these people. They're around too much and I don't want to see them more. Yeah. And I think there's this other thing with Australian reality TV in general and it was really brought home for me – uh, when Queer Eye did that episode in Australia, Australians suck at talking and emoting and just mm. conversing. And mm. you watch that show, you watch any American reality show, Americans, probably because they've been consuming reality TV for decades, are so good at being able to talk and relate and converse and create conflict and navigate conflict. And then when you watch that Australian version of Queer Eye, which is such a beautiful and emotional show, it's like this dad and the son just staring at each other, grunting. And, and and the hosts are like, can you guys talk? And it's like, thanks, dad. No worries, son. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't bad television. It's like Americans are born media trained huh? like, because it's so like it's such an in- individualist culture. They're all aspiring to be millionaires. Like they all truly believe that like they are going to be a millionaire if they simply just do the right thing or like, you know, X, Y, Z, right? Whereas Australians, I think we just, well, yeah, like in a, to put it in a basic way, I think our tall poppy syndrome kicks in and we don't want to make a big deal about ourselves. And then when you see people making a big deal about themselves in Australia, you're like, oh, well, what are you, who cares what you, th-? you know what I mean? Like we instantly totally. get our backs up about it and it just feels dark and weird. <laughs> I think Australians are too self-conscious to be that shameless. Shameful. We're shameful. (laughs) Yeah. We are shameful people. Um, The the last thing I wanted to ask you guys, and it's about where someone like me or anyone listening to the show who now feels compelled to watch, because I certainly do, should start. And I kind of feel like your answers are like, you just got to watch it all. And it does seem like you do get these payoffs for being invested in these characters for a very long time. But yeah, like me, I'm pretty overwhelmed. I don't know whether I want to watch 
I don't know what the hell Weather Potomac is. I don't know whether I want to watch that <laughs> or I want to watch Salt Lake City or Beverly Hills. Start with Melbourne, maybe. Like, do you guys have thoughts on on where is a nice place for a newbie to kick off this show? Uh, yeah, I think Beverly Hills is a great starting point, just because it's the first couple of seasons of that show are so good, so much happens, and it's got that celebrity, you know, element in it. So you you come in caring about these people straight away in a way that maybe wouldn't as much with the other franchises. Yeah, I'm the same. I think Beverly Hills, it's like flashy, it's loud, come in early as well. You have also do have those kind of darker storylines going on that do kind of emotionally grip you a bit more. Uh, I would say even start season four and then go into season five of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills because season five of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. That Amsterdam episode, my God. <laughs> the Amsterdam episode. There's nothing better. And once you see the Amsterdam episode of season five of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, you'll start seeing it in everything else. It's kind of like the Matrix. Like once you know about it, you start seeing it being reflected in wider culture. So that's a great way to wrap up because now I really want to watch this season and this episode. Uh, Katie and Jen, thanks so much. What a wonderful, fascinating conversation. Thanks, Oz. Thanks for having me. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week. Listener.